What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're listening to Bill Handel, on demand from KFI AM 640. KFI AM 640. Live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Bill Handel here on a, a Tuesday, cold Tuesday morning. We're looking at rain coming in again over the weekend. Uh, and we're waiting for the verdict in uh, the murder torture case of Anthony Avalos that will be announced at 1.30 this afternoon. And uh, the state is not doing business with Walgreens anymore because Walgreens has caved in to 20 states' attorneys general saying you will not sell the abortion pill in our state. And Walgreens immediately put their tail between uh, their legs and said, okay. I want to do a story, another story of homelessness. And why do I do that? Because that is the biggest issue. Our crime sort of goes up and down in terms of what we look at. Homelessness never goes away as a problem. So let me get a little bit geographical, uh, geographic here for a moment. Uh, in the Playa del Air, uh, uh, Playa del Rey area, Playa Vista there, the Bologna wetlands, which is a protected wetlands, uh, you will find a whole lot of homeless people. Uh, fires, overdoses there. Uh, once the wetlands and the marsh, the freshwater marsh next to it, you go bird watching. It was pristine. Well, uh, not anymore. You've got trees that have been cut down, storm drains used as trash receptacles. The entire area is a toilet now. The whole place. And uh, it's homeless people. Well, it's not really homeless people. And how does that work? When are you homeless and not homeless at the same time? Like when is a door not a door when it's a jar? You know that stupid joke? Well, when are you homeless and not homeless? When you live in an RV. Then you're not homeless because you've got a home, don't you? That decrepit, broken down, can't use, uh, disgusting RV with trash all around it is, well, it's a home. Just ask those people that live in the RVs. There's my home. Now, I'm not homeless. I don't live in a tent. So uh, it used to be uh, an encampment that vanished completely. Uh, the mayor uh, is looking at many areas of the city and saying, well, uh, based on the new Inside Safe initiative, which moves people into temporary and then medium shelter and then uh, eventually long-term shelter, I'll tell you what she said. We haven't resolved the RV issue yet, uh, but we will because it's very serious. And even if we want to move the RVs, uh, how, how do you do that? Well, there aren't enough trucks capable of getting rid of them. because It takes huge honking trucks. Uh, there's not enough space to store them. Uh, not enough money to pay for it. And uh, even trying to find owners are now almost impossible because uh, there are renters in the RVs. Because that's become an entire cottage industry. 
So to give you an idea, right after the storms went through uh, L.A. Uh, last month or in January, outreach uh, workers in Venice told people in tents, you know, you're soaking wet, trade in your bedding, go to a hotel room, we'll pay for it, there'll be permanent housing. It didn't work for the people that lived in RVs. First of all, they weren't wet. They were in RVs. And they weren't homeless. The uh, new director of the homeless uh, L.A. Homeless Services Authority said, how do you convince someone they're vulnerable and homeless when they don't think of themselves as homeless? They think of themselves as resident, uh, residents. So uh, they've come up with ideas, and none of them working. Uh, how about cheaper free places to park your IVs if you've agreed to move indoors? Well, why is that? Uh, and they're saying, well, you can move to city-owned parks. We'll do that. We'll, okay, you're not homeless. You live in RVs. Why don't we go to a city-owned lot, and we'll have these uh, various, I wouldn't call them encampments, but, uh, you know, little communities. Well, um, no, there aren't enough of those. So how about this one that Bass favors? Persuade people to give up the RVs for demolition. Pay them a lump sum. Wipe out parking tickets and warrants. Uh, hey, that works. Uh, here's the problem. Is the city has to convince people that it's worth the risk. Worth the risk meaning RV is gone, their home is gone, and now they're in temporary shelters uh, waiting for medium-time shelters, whatever they call that, uh, and long-term shelters. Do they trust the city? No. No. Not even close. And uh, the offer of hotel rooms aren't enough. And uh, the only answer is permanent housing. And that seems to be the final answer is permanent housing. And since it costs half a million dollars per unit of housing for permanent housing, and we've got 60,000 people just in L.A. County, not counting Orange County, not counting Ventura, San Bernardino County, L.A., 60,000 homeless people. Uh, do the math, uh, 500,000 times 60,000. Uh, that's like $1.8 trillion, isn't it? It's uh, half of the budget of the entire United States. So just one other avenue. Do I have an answer? Uh, I don't. You know what I do? I sit behind a microphone and bitch about it. And I get paid for doing it. There's my answer. You know, bring on the homeless. Now I want to talk about a hotline. A call center unlike any you have ever heard of. And it's a Ukrainian military hotline. What, what does that mean? Well, a Russian soldier wants to surrender. Not unusual. Uh, because the Russian soldiers all know they're in the fight of their lives. They're probably going to be killed. Morale is horrible. And they're not going to be given equipment. The commanders are useless. And they're fighting a very motivated, well-equipped, well-trained fighting force uh, that's fighting for, well, their own country. And you get pretty motivated. So uh, the Russian soldier calls. And the hotline operator, very calm, says, um, I'm going to give you detailed instructions on how to turn yourself in, how to surrender. Uh, and when you get to the front lines, just call us right away. With cell phones, it's easy to make phone calls, isn't it? So 
Ukraine's military is, uh, well, I mean, think about this. Their one major task is getting rid of the Russian soldiers from the battlefield. And they can do that with arms. They can do that with fighting. But uh, Ukrainians know that the army is riddled with soldiers that don't want to be there. And they realized, well, why don't we make it just easy for them to surrender? I mean, they'd rather do that than die. Because it doesn't take a genius to figure out the other side is better equipped, better trained, uh, is better commanded. I mean, the Russians complaining about the fact that they don't have food, they don't have weapons, uh, they don't know where to go, their commanders are useless. So with that, uh, the I Want to Live outreach was born. And what it does is uh, provide those uh, Russians on uh, the battlefield with step-by-step information on how to abandon their ranks. Originally, it was run by the Ukrainian police. It was so successful, the program was then taken over to the military. And on Russian-language social media, Ukrainians are spreading the word about the website intended as a portal. Uh, It's attracted more than 13.3 million visits, 7.6 million from those uh, from the Russian territory. So through a chat box, which is encrypted on Telegram, Russian Russian soldiers provide personal data. Uh, And then with that, the Ukrainian authorities try to figure out, are these guys serious about turning themselves in? That's one of uh, the training, uh, as part of the training that the Ukrainians have. And... Then they try to figure out who is serious, and they do that with a series of questions, and they figure out who's real and who isn't. Uh, the hotline operators get phone calls around the clock from Russians who are either about to be mobilized or in the middle of being deployed or already on the battlefield. Ten-member hotline team, all active duty personnel with backgrounds in psychology, and what they do is they provide callers with clear concise instructions in a very calm, professional manner. Uh, And you get these soldiers who are calling and are scared to death and are nervous and jittery. And uh, it's almost like uh, hostage negotiators, these hotline operators. Uh, They calm them down. They tell them what the risks. They tell them, here is what you do to minimize the risks. You come to our side and we're going to treat you well. Uh, You're not going to be housed as prisoners of war. It's going to be a very different kind of surrender. And so the hotline operators initially worked out of military headquarters, but and that was in Kiev, the capital. But uh, they later moved to a secret location. As you can imagine, the Russians uh, are not thrilled with this. So uh, this location is seen as a high-profile potential uh, target. Now, when it comes to these surrenders, uh, both sides are aware that this is uh, really dangerous stuff. Uh, That moment of surrender carries enormous risk for everybody involved. So, here are some of the rules. Uh, If you want to turn yourself in, tradition, you wave a white flag. And uh, if you're carrying weapons, you remove the magazines. From the guns, you point the barrels to the ground, you remove all body armor and helmets, and that effectuates the surrender. And uh, 
the uh, Ukrainian authorities say, we're going to treat you well. And by the way, we're, the paperwork that we're going to provide is going to reflect that you were captured just in case you go back or in case uh, the area is overrun. Uh, the Russian authorities, the military won't think you've surrendered. You were just captured. Now, if you're going to the BYOT party that the hotline operators uh, have, uh, and that's bring your own tank, uh, which is not rare, by the way. It happens quite a bit. The turret has to be turned in the opposite direction. If it's a group surrender, sort of a party, uh, which is also common, uh, then uh, the commanders, uh, the highest-ranking soldier has to identify himself. And if a surrendering soldier runs out of options, you call back to the hotline and you're told what to do. The Russians have a two-to-one advantage, at least, uh, in the standing military. But troop uh, quality has deteriorated so much that uh, the West, Western military observers, are citing poor morale, as I said, poor morale, morale, uh, soldiers that are not fed properly, poor equipment, that the Russian, Russian soldiers have simply become fodder. And they are dying by the thousands. And I mean by the tens of thousands. And the Russian soldiers have been lied to. Because uh, they were told when the first invasion took place that they would be welcomed by Ukrainians as liberators. And none of that happened. That they were coming into Ukraine, which really is Russia, because Ukrainians took that land illegally and they were denazifying that area because the Nazis were still in control of that, hearkening back to World War II. That turned out to be false. And they realized, no, that's not the case. We've been lied to. And the position that is now being taken by Putin is that Ukraine is simply a proxy fight for the West to uh, d- dismantle Russia. That it is the West that is threatening our country. They want to dismantle the Russian Federation. That's what this is about. And it's now we are defensive. So it's no longer a fight to liberate. It's now a fight to save Russia. And the Russian people are buying it. And why? Because of the propaganda. Because the media is controlled almost universally by Putin and the government. Although I'll tell you what really gets in the way, and that's the internet. And Russia either doesn't have the ability or has elected not to do with what North Korea does is control even the internet. Where every bit of information coming into North Korea is controlled by the government. Every bit of it. News that just broke this morning, and it's just horrific. Uh, Those four Americans that were kidnapped uh, in Moramoros, Mexico, right across from uh, Brownsville, Texas, uh, of the four, two have been found dead. And uh, the other two, no one has any idea. And uh, this No one is injured? One of the other two is injured, and the other one is fine, unharmed. Oh, and has been returned, or we don't know. I all you've been I know, keeping up on this. Yeah. Uh, so all I know is one is in. So two are dead, one is injured, and one is totally unharmed. Oh, which is so strange. So uh, I know you're on top of this. I'm just going through the news that's been around for a few minutes. So Jen, uh, feel free not to interrupt me uh, <laughs> when uh, news uh, breaks. 
I don't know uh, who. So I don't know if it was the woman who actually went to Mexico for the the cosmetic procedure. You can call it a butt uh, a well, butt lift. But then I'm seeing some people say it was a tummy tuck. So I don't know. But no. anyway, it was some sort of cosmetic procedure. She went down there from South Carolina. She took three of her friends with her, and I don't know who is what. I don't know who was killed, and I don't know who's injured and okay. who's fine. All right, I want to tell you a story uh, about uh, me actually complaining for years that I'd never been asked to do a commencement speech for a graduation. Finally, I had an invitation, and it was for a technical college in Riverside, of which there were six graduates, and uh, they asked me if I could do it in Farsi. And I uh, respectfully declined. And it was a for-profit school, which has since been shut down, I might add. And therein is a story of uh, the Biden administration and the federal government before that for giving billions of dollars in student loans. But wait a minute. How is that possible? Because uh, the loan program, the forgiveness program, has in fact been blocked. And it's not going to be given any life. Congress won't let it happen, and certainly the courts won't let it happen. So, what is going on? Well, this is a loan forgiveness program that is about 10 years old that was created to help students who borrowed money for-profit colleges who just outright lied. We're not talking about for-profit as in you get a good education. We're talking about these technical schools. Remember how you see those commercials during the day for a technical school? I mean, they're still out there. You know, learn how to be a uh, a front office nurse. It was like ITT tech Yeah, and those. You know, learn how to be work in the front office of a doctor's yeah. uh, office. What you learn how to pick up a phone and say, "Doctor is in. I'll make an appointment." It's answering the phone. Now, do you really need uh, a two year certificate for that? Yes, because they also have to know medical filing and all that kind of stuff. But they, I wouldn't know. Yeah, but they answered the phone. The point is oh that there were so many of them that were fake. Not all of them, but so many of them were fake. They were sued because they lied. For example, uh, they also had design ones. So there's one borrower uh, that uh, went to a design school, uh, the Art Institute, uh, and it's closed down since. And uh, she, a counselor told her, and this is early 2012, 92% of the graduates get, job, get jobs within six months of graduation. Not true. Uh, the school would help her secure an internship her senior year. That would lead to a high-paying job. Not true. That her class credits would be fully transferable. Not true. Most of her degree costs would be covered by grants and federal student loans. Not true. So she had to take out a loan directly with the school on top of her federal loan that she took out. Uh, She tried to transfer to the Parsons School of Design, one of the best in the world. No transfer credit. And finally, when uh, she left and she wanted those job interviews, as promised, uh, they sent her postings for jobs with salaries under $25,000, none of which were in the field. Not a one. The point is that, well, frankly, they're a bunch of liars. And the government recognized this, and the program forgives loans 
If you have gone to a for-profit school that has shut down, if you've been defrauded, and it doesn't take much to uh, prove that, and loans are forgiven. Now, we're talking about a few billion dollars, not the $400 billion that the loan forgiveness program that President Biden is push, is uh, pushing and pitching. But, you know, I got to tell you, it's still a lot of billions. I mean, our education system in many, many ways is truly flawed. I want to tell you about a San Diego federal judge who's in a little bit of hot water. Now, keep in mind, most of the time, federal judges are untouchable. It is a lifetime appointment. You're there for the rest of your life. You can't be thrown out short of impeachment. Uh, You can't be forced to retire. I mean, there are 90-year-old judges running around there, federal judges. So when you see a federal judge in trouble, mm, and uh, we'll see on this one. Now, not a whole lot's going to happen to him, although maybe there is, but he's not going to leave the bench. Anyway, uh, U.S. District Judge Roger uh, Benitez, or Benitez, San Diego, uh, during the course of a hearing, he ordered a U.S. Marshal that was there in court to handcuff the 13-year-old daughter of a defendant who he was sentencing. Well, uh, that incident is going to be reviewed by a higher court, uh, the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals said. They're going to look at it. And what happened was, the and there's a reason he did this, the handcuffing exercise. It's not just, let's handcuff this young lady. When you look at the reason, you're going to go, uh, hopefully this worked, even though it may have gone a little far. Uh, What it was intended to do was scare her away from doing drugs and ending up in court like her father. She was there in court as the judge is sentencing him for violating probation. The father's defense attorney described this whole thing uh, in a motion as psychologically damaging and harmful. And now the Ninth Circuit uh, will review the complaint conduct an inquiry, and decide, let's see what we're going to do, which could include dismissal of the complaint, corrective action levied against the judge. I don't even know what that means. Matter of fact, if Wayne's listening out there, I'd like to ask what that means. Or the formation of a special committee to investigate it even further. All right. It occurred during a hearing for her father. Uh, that's what we know. It was a violation of probation hearing. Uh, He had done, I think, five years in prison and had violated uh, the probation he was on, and it was to revoke the probation. So uh, uh, Benitez gives the man a chance to address the court before sentencing, sentencing back to prison for violating those terms. And uh, his, uh, the dad said, this is a recurring cycle. That's the problem here. It's a revolving door. And he said the only way that he could turn his life around was by leaving what I know, leaving everybody I know. Then he told the judge that his daughter is following the same footsteps as I am right now. So the judge interrupts him and says, what do you mean by that? And he said to the judge, she's basically growing up where I grew up. So she's encountering the same people I grew up with. And that's going to lead her into the same path that I went down. 
So they start arguing. There's some legal motions, and uh, the uh, defendant's judge, the father's uh, attorney, is arguing his case. And the judge stops everything, interrupts him, and uh, says, um, okay, turns to the marshal and says, you got cuffs? And the marshal says, yeah, of course. Then he addresses the defendant's daughter. Uh, she's in the gallery, not right at uh, the bench. Asks for her name and asks her to approach uh, the bench and stand next to her father's attorney at the table in front of uh, that section. You know the um, uh, section of the court you always see? You see the defense. You see the attorneys there at those tables. Then you see that barrier and then there's the audience, the gallery. Well, that barrier is the bar. And when you pass the bar, that's where that term came from. You pass the bar and now move into the area where the attorneys uh, line up. Just a little bit of uh, history and a little factoid for you. So the judge goes, you got cuffs. Ask her to uh, approach the bench, turns to the marshal and says, put the cuffs on her. She immediately starts crying. And then uh, Benitez uh, asked the marshal to take her to the jury box. And uh, she continues to cry. And uh, Benitez then releases her after what is described as a long pause. But he didn't let her go back to her seat behind the bar. And he tells the girl twice, don't go away. Look at me. Look at me for just a second. Now, you see where your dad is? And she cryingly says, yes. How'd you like the way those cuffs felt on you? Oh, I didn't like it. How did you like sitting there? Well, that's kind of bizarre because defendants don't sit in the jury box. But uh, And she said, I didn't like it. And then the judge went on to say, good. That was the message I was hoping to get to you. Your dad's made some serious mistakes in his life, and look where it's landed him. And now he has to spend time away from you as a result of his actions. And if you're not careful, young lady, you'll wind up in cuffs. And uh, then uh, Benitez tells the girl, uh, go ahead and go back to the seat, your seat. And he proceeded with sentencing her father to 10 months in prison which was recommended by his attorney and the prosecutor uh, and the U.S. probation office, which is what um, Wayne was for 28 years. He was part of the probation office, and he actually writes recommendations. And uh, the judge went on to say, I hope the next time you're tempted to use drugs, even weed, okay, even weed, you'll remember what happened here today. I hope you remember this mean old face pointing to himself. And he said she had so much in life ahead of her and urged her to tell your mother if she was ever tempted to use drugs. And a few days after the hearing, uh, her dad's attorney filed a motion asking for a different judge to resentence uh, her dad. And I go, wait a minute. He got what everybody wanted. The judge's not going to let him off. That has nothing to do with it. So uh, guess what? The case was transferred to another judge who resentenced him to a term of time already served, and actually it worked. It was the most appropriate sanction given the distressing events, and of course now 
the judge is being looked at. And then I have a question, okay? Um, you know, uh, the dad admitted that his daughter was hanging with the wrong people, was going down the same path. And here is a judge who says, I am going to put you in cuffs to scare you. Jennifer, you're giving me the word look. What's going on? Absolutely nothing. I wasn't looking at you. I was looking oh. at the screen. Oh, okay. Sorry about Peter that. Peter Gabriel's coming to the U.S. And I went, <gasps> oh, sorry, yeah. you caught my. <gasps> yeah, I did catch it. That's yes. true. So I have to tell you, I don't feel as upset with uh, this judge as, uh, as much as other people are. You know, here's a judge who basically wanted to scare her straight. And if it works, you know, it's not the end of the world. I mean, he didn't hurt her. It, she was in the jury box. She was in handcuffs for just, I'm assuming, I don't know what a, a few seconds or a, a pause, a long pause was. But when you think about it, you know, I don't know. If it works, you know, even her father said she's going down the wrong path. So what do you do? Do you let her do it? Or do you scare her straight? I'd be okay with that. Let's do it. Tech Tuesday with Rich Demuro. All the latest on gadgets and stuff with KFI's resident, handsome nerd. It's Tech Tuesday with Rich Demuro. Rich uh, is heard on Rich on Tech. Saturdays, 11 to 2 here on KFI. He's at Rich on Tech. Rich, good morning. Good morning to you, Bill. Oh, a lot going on today, that's for sure. Okay, Amazon. It's a great story. Uh, and that is, it's closing its cashier-free stores. You remember when, uh, well, for those people that don't know, you'd walk in, the technology would read what you put in your cart. Uh, it had been prepaid, uh, or they read your, uh, somehow they read the, your, your payment, uh, whether it's credit card or whatever. I, I don't know if you could prepay and put an account in there, Uh this uh, rich, could you? Nah, let's see. What do you mean? Uh, not really. I mean, okay. you have to have an Amazon account, basically. Okay. That's, yeah. I, I, you know what? You could actually. Now that you say that, you could go in okay. and pay cash at the end. Okay. They did tell me you could do that. Yeah. Not anymore. Uh, because it looks like the cashier-free stores are actually um, store-free stores. Yeah. This they're is. Cl- <laughs> they're closing a bunch of these things already, which is which is wild. So. You know, Amazon, we've talked about the opening and closing of Amazon stores now for a couple of years because this company likes to open up stores, then they like to close those stores. We've seen it happen with Amazon uh, four-star stores, which was sort of like their bookstore. We've seen it happen with Amazon Go. We've seen it happen with Amazon Fresh. Uh, So far, Southern California has been somewhat saved with the Amazon Go and the Amazon Fresh. They haven't really closed those stores here yet. But in other cities, including Seattle, New York City, San Francisco, all these, you know, these go convenience stores are getting shut down. And it's like a 7-Eleven that is just faster, easier, quicker. And I guess, uh, I don't know, they just feel like they don't really need these stores anymore. So it's not a question of profit or no profit. Uh, is it for Amazon? And it doesn't even matter for a company like Amazon. I mean, the kind of money that they make uh, is uh, so astronomical, or maybe not anymore. Um, well, it's it, according to Amazon, this was not a cost-cutting measure, and I, I, you know, I sort of believe that. But here's the thing: if you're not, if if a if a 
something you're doing is not doing really well, why would you close it? You know what I mean? If it's doing extremely well for the company, wouldn't you say, oh, we're keeping these open? So clearly something didn't work here, whether it didn't resonate with consumers. I think that in a world of convenience stores with 7-Eleven, Circle K, AM, PM, all these different things, these companies are doing things really well when it comes to those convenience stores. So you have Amazon come in. They say, well, we can make it cheaper because we don't have people in there to, to actually do anything. Um, you know, cashiers. But it, does it work? I don't know. Did people really want that? Doesn't seem like it. Well, when you, I mean, you think about AM, PM and all those other stores, it's one person. Yeah. It's, well, uh, how expensive yeah. is one person uh, in terms of the revenue that comes in? And of course, when I go in to refill the propane tank, I feel bad because, you know, they got to like lock up the whole store just to walk outside to help me exchange that thing. Which, by the way, at the Amazon store I visited in Whittier, the Amazon Go, they had a self-service propane uh, tank exchange. So uh, I didn't try it out, but basically you would just put your card in and exchange it yourself. But here's the thing. I don't want to alarm people in Southern California. The Amazon Go stores, as I know, we have at least two. There's one in Woodland Hills. There's one in Whittier. There may be some more that I don't know about off the top of my head, but those are staying at least for now. The Amazon Fresh stores, those are staying Mm. at least for now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah. A quick sidebar story. Uh, I needed some coffee because I make coffee and uh, more. I needed some milk for my coffee. And I stopped off at an AM, PM, uh, one of those mini mart gas station uh, stores. I had no idea you could pay $22 for a quart of milk. It was. Just, oh, wow. That's, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. But it's just, I mean, it's crazy. the premium. Yeah, for- it's crazy making. But uh, before we take a break and we go into uh, tipping, which uh, all of us are dealing with, uh, uh Amazon is sort of at the forefront of doing stuff technologically. I remember they started drones very early on. This is Jeff Bezos, who is fascinated with technology. Uh, your thoughts? But where where's that gone? So it seems like every single technological thing that Amazon has tried, they end up stopping. Now, the drone thing is still a work in progress, but... You know, this was many, many years ago. He went on 60 Minutes to say, well, this is what we're doing. They showed off that big drone, and it's never really come to fruition. They're apparently testing it in two cities. One of them's in California, in uh, Northern California, outside Sacramento. But, uh, you know, I keep asking, hey, can I see this in action? No, no, no. Um, Amazon likes to move fast and break things. And I will say this, Bill, they have 100% figured out delivery logistics when it comes to traditional methods. Like now, I don't know if you've seen this, but when you order something in Southern California off Amazon, it will give you a specific window for many items when you're getting that delivered. It'll say, hey, we're going to deliver this tomorrow morning between 4 and 8 a.m. or tonight between 5 and 9 p.m. Tech and tipping. Now, uh, nothing like tipping that drives people crazy. And I'm a very generous tipper. Uh, I also, I tip in cash, by the way. I don't put it on the credit card because I know uh, the waiters are completely honest with the IRS and would always declare uh, the income. Uh, in any case, uh, tell us about tech and tipping. So this is a, an editorial in the New York Times over the weekend that argues kind of what I've been saying privately for many, many years is that technology is basically forcing us to tip more and feel guilty about how we tip. Now, I agree with you. I'm a good tipper, or at least I thought I was, until I started seeing some of these buttons on these tip, uh, you know, computers, you know, where you have these square cashier devices where they flip the screen around, you know, the iPad, that question, hey, can you answer a question before we uh, finish this transaction? And they flip the screen around. And it's like, do you want to 
tip, you know, 20%, 30%, 40% on top of this, you know, muffin you just bought. So the argument is that these default tip buttons that are programmed into these machines are way too high for the average tip, you know, person. And uh, it's also kind of a, a dark pattern tricking us into tipping more into, you know, for things that we may not need to tip for. Like, we're just tipping for stuff that we never thought we had to tip for before. And I'm assuming that um, and, and that the restaurant companies and why they would do that to that extent have figured all this out. I'm sure there's a lot of psychology, there are a lot of focus group testing on this. Uh, why would they put a customer ill at ease? Because it is uncomfortable uh, for the benefit of employees. That one I don't quite get. Well, it, it, that's an interesting one, and I've been trying to figure this out. I mean, is it a guilt thing? Is it because they feel like they're not paying the employees enough? I mean, half of the tipping that I do is because I feel like, okay, well, this person is, you know, uh, not making that much working at this job, and so, like, I feel like I'm getting a nice salad here. Let me give this person a couple of bucks. Like, that's a lot of it is guilt-driven. But if you felt like, you know, if you went into a Gucci store, you're probably not going to tip the person that's selling you your purse because you just paid, you know, so much money for that uh, item. So I think that there's a lot of guilt going on here. But I think at the end of the day, it's just really a shift in how technology processes these transactions and how it's almost an automatic system built in where it used to be when you bought a muffin or a coffee. Sure, there's always a tip jar nearby. And if you're feeling generous, you would put money in there. But now when it's a question on every single time you go to do anything in your life, uh, do you want a tip? I mean, there's really only a couple of places now that don't have these transaction screens that say, hey, do you want to add on an extra, you know, whatever percentage it is. In fact, Bill, I was at a restaurant the other night where the tip was included in the bill and I didn't even notice it because they wrote it in the same exact text that the items were in. So usually, you know, if, it's, if you're paying 18% because you have a big party, no, this is just a surcharge, but it was written in the same exact text as everything else I ordered. So I was just going down the list, making sure. I was like, wait, what? Oh, tips included here. But then they still had the tip line on the bill when you went to pay. Uh, that's not a tip, by the way. Just a quick uh, aside, because I had this issue. Do you know that if you, when you pay 18% for six or more people, uh, they add tax to that? where usually tips are after tax, and you know why they do that? Why? It's because uh, if it's mandatory, it's not a gratuity. It's the cost of the meal, and you pay tax on top of that. And so is that not going to the server, or, what? Uh, or I does it? You know, you, don't, you have no idea because right. uh, that's wide open. You don't know if the tips are pooled. For example, right. do, someone does an extraordinarily good job for you, and you tip... 25%, which I have, I mean, if I've got a great waiter or waitress, depending whether they're male or female or somewhere in between, uh, I will tip pretty heavily. And then the guy who is at the next table does a horrible job and gets 10%. They're getting the same tip. So we don't know if that's happening. Right. Well, and, well, and you mentioned this earlier, though. I think that the way you get around all of this is cash. So whether it's the screen or whether it's, you know, the pooling of the tips, if you hand someone cash... That's not going anywhere else. That's staying with them. Is that pretty much true? Uh, again, it depends on how honest uh, the uh, the server is. Uh, do you know they, what? Yeah. Do they yeah. throw it into the uh, the pool? Uh, right. But the other thing is, uh, and I know we're going off on this tangent of tipping, but in, in the end, I think it affects all of us. And that is uh, on the receipt, the suggested tip. And uh, you're right. It starts at 18%. 
And then it goes to 20%, and then the next line, and then it goes to, I think, 22.5%. I mean, whatever happened to 10% tips? That just doesn't exist. Also, you notice everybody tips after tax. It used to be that you would not tip uh, on top of the taxes. Now it's just you tip on top of everything. Well, tipping has become a force in itself. I mean, look, and I worked as a waiter. I, I really enjoyed tips, and, of course, you love the good tippers. Uh, I also had to tip out, like you were saying earlier, with the cash and, like, whether it goes to them. At the end of the night, we had to count up how much we had and give, you know, 10% to the rest of the folks there or something. I forget what it was, like the host and all that stuff. But the reality is, with technology, with these new systems that are all digital, like these square, you know, cash register systems that are, you know, you're, they're very much high tech. And so when they spin that screen around, it does put people in a very awkward position sometimes because the server or the person that just helped you grab a muffin off the shelf is literally watching you as you say yeah. no tip. And you're not going to do that. You're going to put something down no, on there. No, you're right. The guilt factor is incredible. Yeah, I'm just waiting for, you know, whenever you donate uh, to a charity and Someone rings a bell uh, mm. thanking you. <laughs> We're just around the corner for when you don't tip on those machines. There's a horn that ha- that honks oh in the gosh. store. No tip, no tip. Yeah, That's actually, that would be a great experiment, a great social <laughs> experiment. Someone, a little coffee place should definitely try that and just be like, we have a no tipper uh, right here. We got one. Yeah, well, that's uh, that person's not going to show back up. That's for sure. All right, Rich, uh, this Saturday, 11 to 2 o'clock, Rich on Tech, and you can always uh, reach him at Rich on Tech. Uh, Rich, you have a good one. Take Thanks, care. You do. We'll catch you over the weekend. I uh, grew up in Southern California. And for those of us uh, who did grow up here that are, let's say, over 50, if you remember the air quality near summertime uh, in school, June-ish, before we go out on summer vacation, uh, or even during uh, the summer when we were out in the playground running around, uh, there were times when you couldn't breathe the air. Literally, you couldn't breathe, or it hurt uh, to breathe. I mean, you would take a breath and your lungs would actually hurt And it looked like a London pea soup fog. I mean, it was all brown. And the air quality was just horrendous. It was probably among the worst in the world at that time. Well, uh, what the authorities did is pay attention to what the air quality was outside. And so I couldn't go out for recess. Had to stay indoors. Well, uh, the school I went to, and I won't forget, this was an old school when I went there. Alexandria Avenue School sort of uh, the, you know, not downtown, but uh, pretty near there. And uh, we would go inside. Didn't have air conditioning, of course. This was way early on. And, uh, you know, they really didn't talk about how the air quality inside the classroom was virtually as bad as it was outside the classroom. Now, since the 50s, uh, we have, this is where I was in school at that point and after, uh, the air quality outside was really an issue. And the, we started all kinds of programs. Catalytic converters came in. Uh, you couldn't have, remember, we used to have incinerators in the backyard that we used to burn garbage. I mean, it's, it's just weird thinking about that. Well, it wasn't until the 90s that uh, the school districts or anyone really started thinking about indoor air quality. And all of a sudden, that became important. And where it became super important is uh, in the schools. Because there are now so many studies 
that talk about how important indoor air quality is, uh, that it almost is overwhelming. You go, wait a minute, is, uh, is all of this true? It is. Because there have been studies after study that talks about the level of education, the health of students, uh, the educational development of students, absenteeism, and not to say uh, asthma, other uh, respiratory diseases. I mean, it all boils down to uh, indoor air quality, assuming the outdoor air quality is reasonably okay. Because when it comes to indoor it can actually get so bad uh, because of the way schools are built, because of the way uh, buildings have not been retrofitted, uh, that it's become a real problem. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you a little bit about my favorite school district, L.A. Unified. And the reason I come up with L.A. Unified uh, versus other school districts is, number one, uh, it is one of the largest school districts in the country, so it has problems other school districts don't uh, have. And also, I went to L.A. Unified. That gives you license to talk smack. Oh, uh, yeah, it does. Yep. Uh, it absolutely does. And unfortunately, you'll talk to people who even like LA Unified, understand um, it's not the same. This is, I mean, it's when you talk about the good old days, which, by the way, don't exist. Everybody's talking about <laughs> the good old days. It's a crock. You know, the good old days before penicillin, uh, before cars. Oh, when horses used to go around, there was a bunch of horse crap on the streets. You couldn't walk straight. But those are the good old days. Oh, people died of every disease you can imagine. The good old days. When it comes to my elementary school and where I went to school, it was the good old days. Aww. Not necessarily breathing. That was a little tougher. But that's small potatoes. A little smoggy. Uh, oh, Southern California, it was, it, it was beyond comprehension. It was very, very rough uh, when it was hot and smoggy. And the smog used to be... Uh, it was among the smoggiest cities in the world, uh, L.A., and it was downright dangerous. I mean, people died like crazy. There were respiratory illnesses, and it has cleaned up somewhat. Studies have linked dirty air inside of school, and we're talking about communities with dirty air outside of schools, and there you go to the Inland Empire where it is far smoggier, and uh, that dirty air has and leads to a variety of health condition and learning delays. And that a proven cost-effective way to clean up school air uh, is clearly to improve the school's ventilation system. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. And California, no surprise, uh, we've been a leader in recognizing this. Even before COVID, California imposed all kinds of rules, making sure that new school buildings, that's really important, new school buildings offered clean air. January 1st, uh, California became the first state to require every school, regardless of age, to assess, to upgrade their, ventila uh, their ventilation system. And then the magic word in the bill is, if feasible. Okay, that leaves a lot of wiggle room, doesn't it? You've got to clean up those rooms. You've got to clean the air, if feasible. Well, as I said, I went to an old school when I went to the school. I mean, it was an old building. I went back there a few years ago. God, it was a lot smaller than when I was a six-year-old. It just seemed just a whole lot smarter, uh, smaller. Well, of course, we didn't have air conditioning. Although, I tell you what, we did have crayons. Every year, we got crayons and a little ruler. Try doing that today. 
Today, you're lucky if you have seats. We also had all the textbooks and covers. Well, that's gone for sure. So the mandate for cleaning up the air inside the classroom uh, has come after billions of dollars, state and federal dollars, mostly related to the pandemic, uh, were made available to schools to improve air quality. Uh, LA Unified, uh, my alma mater, now spends about $20 million a year to inspect and maintain more than, you ready for this number? 115,000 air filtration systems. And uh, the Environmental Law Institute national study just came out. What a shocker this one is. It ain't enough. Not even close. So here are the holes in this entire system. For starters, there is no centralized agency to overschool, to oversee school indoor air quality. Uh, because the state, and I told you this before, state and local air quality districts focus on outdoor air. That's where it's all about. School districts are left to themselves to inspect and police themselves. You know, you've got the Air Quality Management Board, outdoor air. You've got all kinds of agencies. It's about outdoor air. And you've got loopholes uh, in the new state law uh, that allows schools, a lot of them, particularly older campuses, uh, which often serve the neediest students. I lived in an area that was not pretty. We were poor when we came to the United States. I mean, you know, really poor. Uh, and uh, the school where I went to was not in a very good area. It was very old. There was no air conditioning uh, at all. And for schools that are out there that have air conditioning, uh, it really isn't enough to push air through. Now, as I told you this past, uh, what was it, this past, uh, uh, was it past summer? Yeah, I, I went to Italy, uh, and it was I was in the middle of a huge heat spell and I stayed in air-conditioned hotels. <laughs> Their idea of air conditioning is very different than our idea of air conditioning. And the same thing goes, unfortunately, for the schools. So we're talking about uh, rules that have to be applied that aren't being applied. International health groups are calling for indoor air rules, uh, even more strict than what California has uh, in the new law. And California is the strictest law in the country. So... How do they get there? What do districts do? Well, they have to boost ventilation. They have to add tools. What are tools? How about portable air purifiers? Just bring in those portable air purifiers, one for every single classroom. In the meantime, LA Unified has about half a million students. That's a lot of classrooms. So $50 million in federal funding the L.A. Unified School District budgeted for uh, portable air purifiers a couple of years ago. Wow, $50 million. Is that a lot? Uh, well, at least it would help. Oh, by the way, that money's been reassigned. Uh, they needed it in other places, so they weren't going to buy air filters for that. Um, public policy didn't expand to include air quality, as I said, until the early 1990s. And that's when uh, classroom ventilation was being studied. And no surprise here, you've got students and teachers in poor ventilation rooms, more likely to miss school and report health problems. And missing school is no joke because you know how schools get paid? A huge amount of federal dollars get paid. And it's all about attendance. That's why you had homeroom in junior high. That's why the teachers take attendance they really push for attendance because the federal dollars come in based on attendance. 
the Lawrence Livermore uh, Berkeley National Laboratory, when they're not busy uh, doing nuclear weapons, uh, did a story on this and or did a study and uh, better ventilation in school just outright leads to better grades, better health. It's, uh, it makes all the sense in the world. So where'd you go to school, Shannon? I went to which school? What level? Oh, elementary school. Let's elementary school. I went to Francis Scott Key, which is not called that anymore because of racist uh, in San Francisco. Yeah, that racist then, Star Spangled uh, Banner. Yeah, I know. That's a tough one. Yeah, so that was great in the city. I was the only white girl in the class who felt special. And then my brother got caught making out with a girl at the middle school. So they shipped us off to the convent, which was St. Isabella's, where everyone looked like me. And it was zero fun. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I would get yeah, a lot of uh, nuns hitting you on the uh, knuckles with the rulers. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, a lot of that. They were very lovely people, weren't they? <laughs> uh, you were talking about the, the smog issue. I remember coming out here in the 80s to visit my grandma. She lived in Glendale. And then coming back when I interviewed with Chris Little for the reporter job and not realizing there were mountains here. Because yeah. the last time I had been here, you couldn't see them. Yeah. And can you imagine in the 50s? Oh, my they, gosh. The, uh, there were no catalytic converters incinerators right. that were burning. I mean, it was, as I told you, it was pea soup. Insane. Uh, it was really tough. Okay, right, well, so- you were talking about George Gascon. We yes. both agree he is. he has no business being in the DA's office. I mean, he's never even tried a case before, for the love of God. We have breaking news coming up right after the news at the top of the hour about how we're probably not going to have to deal with George Gascon for much longer. Also, he's not only costing the county lives with his ridiculous directives that do not look out for public safety but now he's going to be costing the county millions of taxpayer dollars because of his retaliatory transfers of veteran prosecutors all right so that's a lot going on also I want to remind you is uh i want to remind you that i am taking phone calls for handle on the law off the air and you can if you're on the phone you can still listen to gary and shannon show which is uh, it's just as good on the phone Uh, But it's only one ear, probably. Uh, The number is 877-520-1150. Handle on the law calls off the air. Coming up, Gary and Shannon on a Tuesday. Shannon, have a good show. Thank you, sir. Uh, This is KFI AM 640 Live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. You've been listening to The Bill Handel Show. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. and anytime on demand on the iHeartRadio app. 